Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have a talk from Ken Myers of Mars Hill Audio on music. We have put a link to Ken Myers' excellent work with Mars Hill Audio down in the show notes. This lecture was delivered several years ago during a course that we had titled Music in Life and Liturgy. And you can find a download to the entire course down in the show notes if you'd like to purchase that. As always, we do invite you to take a look at those links in the show notes, specifically our YouTube channel, where right now we are in the midst of an ongoing video series walking through the Sermon on the Mount with Peter Lightheart. And there are also links down there to sign up for our weekly newsletter and all of our social media handles. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is Ken Myers with a talk on listening and music. The division of labor that we have between myself and Jim is something that just kind of fell in place. Um, And we haven't really talked with each other much about (laughs) who's doing what. We have some. We're not that that unprepared. But... uh, it's interesting hearing Peter's charge also that uh, I'm not focusing my work in a kind of theology of music, uh, even though that's uh, a phrase that shows up in describing the first page. I really am a, a journalist and a cultural analyst trying to understand our culture. And there will be a lot of theology in, in my talks. But um, I also think one of the things I'm, I'm really interested in is uh, not just promoting good singing, but good listening. Uh, a lot of our experience with music is as listeners, and even uh, musicians have to listen to each other very closely. And over the years, as I've watched music education programs, uh, I find a lot of people are, are eager to train people to play and sing, and that is a good way uh, um, to learn to listen, to play and sing music. But uh, I know some musicians who like to sing but don't listen. <laughs> in fact, I have trouble in choirs sometimes with people who just like to sing their own part and not listen to everybody else. So wh- one of the things that I'm going to keep coming back to is, uh, is, is trying to train people to be good listeners. Part of that is, um, hey, I started my career as a disc jockey, and so... <laughs> I've um, always been frustrated that people don't want to hear the music I think they should, should hear. So that, that is my, my dark secret of, about this. Peter mentioned that uh, the work I've done for Mars Hill Audio, I, I mentioned to him a couple years ago that, that music has always been at the, at the back of my thinking. I wrote a book called All God's Children in Blue Suede Shoes on popular culture back in 1989. And uh, since then have been very intrigued by the way in which popular culture has had a, a unique and unprecedented authority in, in contemporary American life. Um, the thing we call popular culture now, I think, is very different than what might have been called popular culture, say, in Shakespeare's day. People are often saying, well, Shakespeare was popular culture. Well, it's a little bit different. But what is striking to me is the way in which the legacy of what sometimes is called high culture has been... Uh, effectively displaced from, from any position of public honor. And that's happened in my lifetime. I can remember watching the Leonard Bernstein Young People's Concerts from Lincoln Center in the 1960s as a grade school kid. Uh, and uh, it's a fascinating exercise. Um, New York Philharmonic and I think it was CBS broadcast them without commercials. And uh, kids all over America were forced to watch these, <laughs> these concerts. The idea of cultural authority was not something just driven by market forces. Uh, and I think one of the big cultural dilemmas that we face in our society is, is the, um, the substitution of the idea of culture as inheritance or legacy with the idea of uh, as culture as a set of commodities. I think that's, a, that's an overarching or under lying problem in American culture that has to do with more than just music. But I think music and the experience of music is uh, one of the places where that's most felt. So th- those are some of the concerns. I, I want to, um, 
there'll be a, a lot of introductory material here. And I, I will warn you right now that I told Peter, I wrote the outline for this material before I'd written the, the material. And typically, I write the material and then go back and, and write an outline. This time, I wrote, actually wrote the outline first and then started filling it all in. And, and uh, it's not weighted cr quite correctly, so you, you may feel like we're, we're going to be way behind at the end of the day, but that's okay because there's lots of room at the end of the week to, to get caught up, so don't worry about that. Let me start with a story that explains one of the reasons I'm here also. Uh, Several years ago, I was speaking at a church. I was in town doing lectures at a school, and I was invited to teach a Sunday school class, kind of at the last minute, and then stayed uh, for the worship service. And uh, after the service, the pastor took me and a couple of elders uh, out to lunch. And in the car on the way to the restaurant, he asked me what I thought of the worship service. Now, I hadn't been intending on making any comments about the liturgy, uh, mainly because the music had been well, limp, <laughs> infantile is another word that comes to mind. So I, I paused to collect my thoughts and then offered what I thought was a charitable appraisal. Um, I said, well, it's sad that the level of musical knowledge in our culture is such that uh, churches have to dumb down their music. What a sad thing that is. So I was sharing his victimhood, in a sense. I thought that... <laughs> I wanted to identify with him in this, this bad condition we're in, rather than be a judge. Well, maybe dumb was a bad verb to use, <laughs> uh, but I was really surprised at the vehemence of his response, and I can still hear it echoing, even though I don't remember what city I was in. <laughs> I, got, I remember how upset he was. And it's not that he thought that the music in his service wasn't dumb. Uh, it was that he thought that music wasn't the kind of experience that lent itself to the category of intelligence, uh, one way or another. Music was, in this pastor's view, rational. It was something incapable of objective assessment. And we spent about an hour and a half <laughs> batting this question around in a relatively friendly, Christianish sort of way. And the thing that impressed me most was the fact that this man evidently knew next to nothing about music, but believed that he was as qualified to make bold assertions about the nature of music as was Yo-Yo Ma. Now, how had he come to the conclusion that music was irrational, that it was a matter for perception but not cogitation? It was an experience that wasn't open to the intellect. How had he come to that conclusion? Well, I don't think it was a conclusion. I think it was something he absorbed. I think it was uh, a uh, captivity to the spirit of the age. The making and consumption of music is generally assumed to be an expression of something that's deeply personal and instinctive and hence beyond thoughtful discipline. It's not something we can critique and discipline. I uh, years ago knew a young man very thoughtful young man who happens to be now a Benedictine monk in Chicago, at a monastery in Chicago. At the time, he was a student at the University of Virginia. And uh, knew a lot about music, didn't know much about jazz, and decided it would be a good thing to learn about jazz. So he spent two years, he had an uncle who knew a lot about jazz, and he spent two years kind of schooling himself. When he first listened to jazz, he didn't like it, but he thought, there must be, there's something valuable here for me. And he spent a couple years and, 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 and really came to understand and, and uh, appreciate a number of aspects about jazz. Well, he was telling this story to a mutual friend, a, a student, I think a fellow student at UVA, and she was appalled that he would actually train himself to understand and like something that wasn't immediately uh, graspable, something he didn't immediately respond to. The idea that you would actually receive training to like something that you didn't like naturally. It was an unnatural act in, in, her, in her view. And uh, I think that's, that is typical in, in our time. Um, I'm reminded of a famous observation by uh, Alistair McIntyre in this early 80s book, After Virtue, where he talks about the, 
widespread assumption that all judgments of value are expressions of preference. They're not rational in any way. There's no, there's no way to think about such things. So, and I think Christians typically believe the same sorts of things about music that their materialistic and relativistic neighbors do. And this is, I think, a source, this is one of the sources of distress for me, that, um, the, that the understanding of music in most churches is probably not much different than, than it is elsewhere, of what kind of thing music is. Long before that conversation, I had been concerned about the musical life of the church and its tendency to carelessly adopt musical habits of the surrounding culture. But I think that afternoon was a kind of tipping point. Uh, I had a heart attack three and a half years ago and uh, really should be dead. In fact, my new motto is, I should be dead, I'm going to be candid. I, my heart stopped three times. I was medevac to a hospital. I was uh, unconscious for 13 hours, and the prognosis was very grim. Uh, and as it, my my survival and recovery is really miraculous, um, and I'm very grateful for it. And uh, as I was lying in bed, uh, trying to take it easy afterwards, and thinking about why. Uh, why God may have given me my life back. Um, I realized that, well, and also thinking as my cardiologist asked, what are the sources of stress in your life? (laughs) I realized that one of the principal sources of stress in my life uh, were bad worship services that I attended. Uh, And I'm not joking. uh, And usually this happens when I'm invited to speak somewhere uh, about being culturally wise, <laughs> and then <laughs> I'm uh, forced to submit myself to something that's really culturally foolish, to, to put it bluntly. Uh, it's also, and, and some really bad ones. I mean, I've, uh, some of the worst are usually in college, uh, either college chapels or uh, parachurch ministries. And uh, I mean scary bad, not just puerile and dumb. Uh, and so I decided then that, uh, that I really would put a lot more attention into um, addressing music much more deliberately and, and uh, aggressively, um, because I do think that, that one of the confusions of contemporary culture is the inability that our society has to acknowledge the nature of our creatureliness. Uh, it's, it's not just that we find hostility to the gospel, but we find uh, an, an inability to uh, acknowledge the realities of our creatureliness. Uh, and so, uh, and I think that music is a mode of perceiving something about creation and something about our own creatureliness. And that's one of the things I'll be talking about mostly this morning. A friend who was trained as a jazz musician encouraged me to consider what is it about music that exempts it from the kind of scrutiny that other cultural activities receive? Why is it that people are willing to sheepishly acknowledge that their their food habits are bad or that maybe Miller Lite isn't the pinnacle of brewing the brewer's art, uh, that there might be better beers than that? Or, uh, you know, uh, I, I have lots of friends who are eager to extol the virtues of well-made single malt scotch. Uh, and yet, in, in many of those circles where people are willing to repent, uh, to have a, a metanoia experience, uh, music is the one area that they're not. I talked to Calvin Stapert, at, uh, who taught music at Calvin College for a number of years about this. Uh, he participated in a colloquium I organized. And uh, he told me an amazing story. He was uh, in a class on Christianity and culture, and they were reading, I think, a book by Al Walters, who's a Kuyperian, and uh, I think it's Creation Regained. Does that sound like a title of Al Walters? And they were talking about, he he was talking about the effects of the fall and how the fall had affected every aspect of of human life. Uh, And he listed, rattled off a list, uh, politics, uh, economics, um, education, family, the arts, music, 
And, uh, and when he mentioned music, I, I, actually, I don't think this was one of his classes. This was another class at Calvin. When, when music was mentioned, the students bristled. And, and they, in conversation, it turned out that they thought that the one area of human life that the fall hadn't affected was music. Somehow, music was uh, sealed off in this protective zone where, uh, where we couldn't uh, possibly claim that the fall uh, and our experience of depravity had somehow affected music. That's, that's a pretty deep, at Calvin College for students to believe that, that's, that's a pretty deep uh, thing. So what is it about music that, uh, is there something about music, uh, precisely about the mystery and magnificence of music that renders it a kind of self-defending in, in people's lives? Isidore of Seville, 560 to 636. Without music, there can be no perfect knowledge, for there is nothing without it. For even the universe itself is said to have been put together with a certain harmony of sounds, and the very heavens resolve, revolve under the guidance of harmony. This is one expression of an intuition about music that theologians have had since the earliest days of Christian theology. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit later about this particular formulation, but it expresses what I think is an appropriate reverence and wonder for the gift that is music, which is a posture that's all too rare among today's theologians and clergy as well as laity. Theologians and clergy, in my experience, tend to treat mu music more as a marketing tool than a reflection of cosmic order. Now, I don't know... Uh, I, I assume that the fact that you're here means that we're in general sympathy. <laughs> I, can't, I can't be sure of that. I never assume that. I always assume a hostile audience wherever I go on this topic. Um, but what I'm hoping to do is to encourage you to try to sustain uh, a more informed conversation about music uh, in the circles that you're in. Uh, not just better musical practices, which I think Jim will be helping us with a lot, but also um, better ways of, uh, uh, or, or, or a commitment to, as I said, more informed conversation. I think this is, this is something we're rem lacking remarkably. I write a column for the last year and a half, I've been writing a column, almost two years, for Touchstone magazine on, on basically on great works in the sacred choral music repertoire for Touchstone magazine. And uh, that may be the only regular uh, journalistic effort in Christian magazines to address what we call classical music or serious music or art music, which is kind of astonishing given, given the, uh, the, 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 the role that the church has played in shaping that tradition. Uh, given the amazing amount of repertoire that's available and even more perhaps even more significantly, given the unprecedented uh, wealth of recordings that are available for people to, to listen to material. And yet it's pretty much neglected. Um, about the 40th time I received a request from somebody to do a, a piece about U2, <laughs> it was amazing. I, you know, no one ever said, why don't you do something on Palestrina or... Uh, <laughs> Do something on Brahms's Requiem, but about every month somebody would say, "Yeah, you ought to do something on you too," like everyone else is. <laughs> <laughs> I told the story when I, I spoke in Moscow. Uh, is that two years? Almost two years ago. Uh, about you uh, two had a concert in Charlottesville, and and within a couple of months there was a concert of the Talis Scholars, which is one of the best Renaissance choral music ensembles in the world. And all the Christians I knew in town were so excited about U2, they're taking their kids, they're just thrilled. I didn't see anybody from uh, any church that I knew at the, at the Talis concert, and yet they're singing music that has been part of our culture's life, to one degree or another, uh, uh, and has informed uh, the work of, of serious music within churches for hundreds of years. Uh, we're just going to scratch the surface uh, for the sorts of things that need to be considered, but I hope that by the end of the week that uh, far from having all the answers, you'll be equipped with a set of questions you hadn't considered and a willingness to dedicate time to becoming, uh, to inc inc increasing in your musical wisdom. And I, I think that's something that, that is a lifelong project.
Um, I'm, when I lecture on these, this subject, I'm always heartened by Flannery O'Connor's quip that you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd, uh, which I think is uh, something we can take comfort in. Let me start with some reference points, some propositions as reference points uh, in launching this discussion. Uh, and this, this is on your outline, this is all still part of the why, why I'm teaching this course or what, what my goals are in this course. So th this is not broken down um, in the outline. Uh, first proposition, music is a great gift of God a unique gift in its capacity to represent and in some way enable us to participate in the order of God's creation. Music is not merely a mode of personal expression, though it is that, but it's also a way of knowing something about the objective reality of divine and human nature. It addresses the body, the intellect, the imagination, and the emotions in a uniquely integrated and powerful way. Music is a great and powerful mystery, something that unites heaven and earth. And every Sunday in my church, as in many churches for centuries, we affirm that we sing praise to God in union with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, not simply speaking, but singing our praise. So it's a gift that is, in a sense, a kind of epiphany. And then the second proposition is, like all of God's good gifts, music can be corrupted and abused. Musical forms and practices are not neutral. They're, ma they're not made worthy or unworthy simply by good intentions. Our, they're not made worthy by our good intentions. Uh, third, modern culture has, in fact, systemically disordered our musical practices. It's not the result of some vicious conspiracy, but it's a consequence of a host of cultural developments. And that disordering in the culture around us prevents us from perceiving the fullest capacities of music. Uh, I have been known to say that Americans are as confused about music as they are about sex and for the same reasons, um, which sometimes draws a puzzled look from people. But uh, and maybe it's puzzling to you. I hope it becomes clear why I think that. Fourth, the disordering of our musical practices does have resonance, as, as my quip suggests, or analogy with other everyday disorders. And I particularly I isolate sexuality, language, and food uh, as, as other practices that, that uh, I think, because of the way they're configured in our lives, conceal uh, the, the, the kind of things that they are and the kinds of things we should learn from them. It's obvious Americans are confused about the meaning of sex. Um, the cultural forces that have misguided our engagement with the gifts of food and language uh, also have similar effects with our engagement with music. I think all four of these things, language, food, sex, and music, are gifts of God that orient us bodily uh, when pursued thoughtfully and fittingly toward God, toward creation, toward our communities, and toward our own created identity. Jargon and propaganda corrupts our experience of language. Convenience and commodification spoil our perception of the meaning of food. Pornography hooking up and the exaltation of preference pervert our understanding of sexuality. And so a very similar set of cultural forces has cut us off from the communicative power, the nourishment, and the beauty that's available in music. Not only are there intriguing likenesses among these four sets of disordered practices, I believe when one is disordered, the others uh, are often affected. Christians worry a lot about disordered sex, and for good reason, but sexuality is part of a bigger ecosystem in which various practices are mutually engaged. All four of these spheres deal with, as I've suggested, how we're oriented in creation and with one another. All four are involved with our understanding of and pursuit of desire. All four are used in scripture as metaphors for some aspects of our relationship with God, and not just metaphors, by using the tongue lovingly in speech, by accepting food as a gift, by honoring the relationship between Christ and the church in marital fidelity, and by experiencing harmony, both literally and figuratively, our communion with God and with his people are enabled, and to corrupt one of these is to weaken all of them. Fifth proposition, because music has such a powerful capacity to engage the whole person, its disordering seems to be accompanied by a powerful defense mechanism that resists reform. 
Because music dwells in us richly and becomes fused to our identity, it's easy for us to become identified with our musical preferences, and that accounts in part for the absence of a robust discussion concerning musical practices. <clears throat> it's a little bit like an adulterer defending his relationship uh, because uh, his relationship becomes a kind of part of his identity. Sixth, if we recognize that discipleship is the process of formation of the whole person, then we can't avoid addressing the ways in which the practices of music form the heart. Disordered musical practices make us love things we shouldn't, while depriving us of opportunities for delight in the best that music can be. The unique nature of music enables it to shape our affections and dispositions with an unparalleled power, and so philosophers and theologians and teachers long believed that the shaping of musical taste was an important part of moral formation. For a host of reasons, the mid-20th century witnessed a remarkable abandonment of the concern to govern musical practices. Um, sometimes even my sympathetic friends are surprised when I say that I'm, I'm not just interested in reforming the music of the church, I'm interested in the church reforming the music that people experience during the rest of the week. And some people say, oh well, how can we, you know, we, they, don't even, they don't want to think about that, that, that actually our perception, our, 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 our musical practices Monday through Saturday would be shaped by the, 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 the instruction that we receive from the church. And yet, for centuries, um, it's interesting, I went back and read, uh, well, recently, Calvin Stapert's book. I may have brought it with me. Uh, I always recommend books. You know, as Peter suggested, I'm, I have the gift of bibliography. So I've got the, a new song for an old world, musical thought in, in the early church. I actually thought of making this one of the texts for the class, but didn't do that. Calvin Stapert's summary of uh, mostly patristic uh, writings about music. And it's interesting that they almost never talk about music for worship. What kind of music we should use in worship never came, comes up. What they're principally addressing is what people are doing with music during the week. Uh, the assumption being that if you do good things with music during the week, um, you won't be tempted to do bad things with music on Sunday. I guess that's part of the assumption. Uh, it'd be interesting... I'd like to hear Jim's take on, on, on that. Uh, in your outline, we've come to music carelessly situated can reflect and amplify ambient cultural confusion. What's that, point two? <laughs> it, it'll speed up, trust me. Uh, as a culture, we now tacitly assume it's a, it's a good idea to turn over the shaping of musical affections in the young to commercial interests who will eagerly exploit youthful anxieties in the name of profit. What a stupid thing that is. I think that may be unprecedented in human history, that we think it's a good thing to, to, for our children's musical taste to be shaped by commercial interests who, again, are exploiting adolescent anxiety, typically. Uh, that's... They may not see that's what they're doing, but I think that's what they're doing. Kids who've embraced a modern ideal of autonomy, which is promoted through advertising and other civic forces, want to define themselves over against their parents. This is a common trope in American life. Uh, in fact, uh, well, no. Often, kids believe that it's the right thing to do to defiantly want music of their own music that expresses their desire for being let loose. And kids whose identity is no longer secure in their family, neighborhood, or church, who want to be cool, above all, uh, anxiously want music that will align them with the right group. Kids who are experiencing new emotional and physical urges are rarely trained in the theory and practices of self-control, and so passionately want music that will give them the rush of immediate release through simple, often addictive, sensory experience. These are all dubious desires, but they're typically encouraged in modern culture and commonly sustained by popular culture. Tradition, discipline, and refinement are not high on the list of cultural values in modern America. I'm always amused when I see well-intentioned Christian uh, pop music performers, you know, let, let, let's, let's write a song about chastity. Uh, the, 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 Let's write a song that has a driving rhythm that just kind of propels us <laughs> about and promote the idea of 
of self-control. <laughs> Let it all out. Let's hear it for self-control. Yeah, let's release. Yeah, louder, louder. What's wrong with this picture? Um, historically, the unique capacity of music to release the passions meant that it had to be treated with care. But our notions of freedom and self-expression leave no room for the virtue of self-control, let alone the cultivation of superior taste. So as a result, the experience of music for most Americans in the past 50 years has been shaped by a set of non-musical cultural ideals which bring together many of the most troubling aspects of modernity. Now, what I hope you'll acquire from this course, improved listening habits. Uh, I'm hoping that, uh, that some of the uh, examples and some of the analysis I provide in the, in the next few days will will help you listen more attentively. I find that uh, very few people have had the experience of listening to music without doing something else. It's really remarkable how music is typically a background thing accompanying. And th that's not a bad thing. I, don't th I think some music is written to be background music. That's always been the case. But as uh, musical composition became more sophisticated, the possibility of attending to music from the beginning to the end, to hear a whole work is uh, increasingly uh, valued in, by composition, but it's in, in contemporary culture, it's, it's partly, I think, for technical reasons. It used to be that you, if you were going to listen to a recording, you had to sit down in front of a record player um, and um, you couldn't listen, you, you typically wouldn't listen just to a three-minute snippet of something and then go do something else, or you wouldn't take the record player in your car with you, or you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't listen to it on the subway and hear just little snippets. So, so music has become more of a kind of ambient experience. I think that's affected the kind of music uh, people do listen to. Um, but I think we, uh, we, all of us have bad listening habits, and, um, and as a result, we don't receive from music what we could. I think also um, there, there's, um, I think, a general absence of vocabulary to talk, talk about music. Um, Ted Joya, who's a jazz critic, wrote a piece online a couple years ago about how almost all music journalism uh, had become um, basically a form of lifestyle reporting. Uh, in fact, I sometimes go into local Barnes & Noble and look at, there's a huge array of music magazines. But uh, I don't see a lot of words about music. <laughs> uh, there's rarely a reference to the harmonic structure of musical pieces uh, or uh, melodic form. Occasionally, you'll hear a little reference uh, to those things. The, 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 the Sasha Frere Jones, who writes music criticism for the New Yorker, uh, is better than most. But uh, most, most uh, and this was a point Ted Joya was making, most of it's about the lifestyle promoted by particular bands or the image, the, the kind of brand that they're promoting and, uh, and the, the how particular songs that they've released uh, reinforce that, that mentality. Um, so I think, again, I, I like to imagine churches as communities where people are equipped to, to, uh, to to talk about music. Um, I'm also hoping uh, for some of you perhaps an expanded familiarity with the, le the legacy of Western music, particularly music, sometimes it's called early music. I like to think of it as pre-enlightenment music. It's interesting that uh, in our musical culture, the 19th and 20th century, or 19th century really dominates much of the, the classical music world. Baroque and earlier is kind of this iffy Period, and I find it's a fascinating thing that uh, it's one of the reasons I wanted you to read James Gaines's book on Bach and Frederick the Great. That music that was written before the Enlightenment uh, tends to be more remote and strange for us. I think that, given the fact that in the last twenty or thirty years, a lot of thoughtful Christian theologians have basically said we need to look at what theology was before the Enlightenment, look at how the Enlightenment has misshaped theology. I think the same should be the case uh, for our attentiveness to music, what was going on musically 
uh, before, say, 1750, the year that Bach died. Uh, and then uh, the last thing I put on this list, uh, greater confidence about and skills for making of aesthetic judgments uh, and the recognition of the pastoral dimensions of musical wisdom. I that should be self-evident what that means. Let's listen to a little bit of music. I think on the Thursday, fourth day, uh, in the afternoon, we're going to listen to um, a good portion of the Goldberg Variations. How many of you know the Goldberg Variations or have listened to them? Okay. Or no, have familiar with the music, yeah. I, one of the things I want to focus on in the afternoon sessions is the role of, of counterpoint in shaping musical meaning. And uh, I think that counterpoint is the way, it, well, I'll explain in the afternoon why, why I want to do that. But uh, I thought just to take a, a, uh, a little break and to hear some music, uh, to hear the opening aria, uh, and pay attention to what's going on melodically. This is uh, actually a performance of the opening movement uh, by a, a viol consort. It's a transcription, not, not the original keyboard work, but um, the parts actually are a little bit clarified. The, the different voices are a little bit clarified this way. We'll be listening to it both. Uh, we'll probably listen to a piano rendition on Thursday. but. Uh, so let's just take a little time and listen to this. And I hope this is loud enough here. Thank you. 
it's slow. What's that? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was actually surprised. So uh, I wanted to play this. I think what we'll do is tomorrow and Wednesday and Thursday, listen to different performances just of the aria. How many of you know, how many, how many of you, some of you are pianists. Have you ever played Goldberg? I mean, this is a big, big project to do. And how many of you have ever heard a transcribed version, something other than keyboard? Because there are, uh, there's a version for harp. There's, there's, I think there's a guitarist who's done, there are lots of different transcriptions. It's interesting how different things come out when, when the thing is transcribed. So we'll listen to different, and part of it is also, uh, as I, I say in this second, second lecture, that memory plays a huge role in being a, a good listener. I don't know how many times I've heard this aria, and so as I'm listening to it, I'm remembering other performances of it. I'm, I'm first of all, remembering the structure, of the, just the general structure of it, both melodically and harmonically. Um, but then also with, uh, in this case, there are two repeats that are uh, ta sometimes taken, sometimes not taken. Uh, in, in, in the movement, and um, the, the repeats enable memory uh, within the piece, not just, um, not just a memory of, of other performances of it. So we'll, we'll listen to that several times, and then we'll listen to and look at the structure of it in more detail on Thursday afternoon. Life and bodies. Um, the pastor that I mentioned at the, at the opening was dubious about the possibility of music being something open to intellectual analysis, may have, may have felt that because music is a sensory experience and not an abstract set of propositions, that that makes it irrational. And part of what I want to do in this opening lecture is to, first of all, rein, reinforce a theme that both Jim and Peter have stressed in their own teaching of kind of an anti-Gnostic theme about the goodness of life and bodies, but also look into questions about the intelligibility of creation through, uh, in, through uh, sensory experience, uh, which is why I talk about the meaningfulness of creation. And this gets into some, some ways of thinking about uh, how we perceive meaning in music uh, by the end of this se section. One of the Favorite essays of, uh, by Wendell Berry, one of my favorite essays, is, uh, and, and the essay from which I learned a lot about how Gnostic we are in our culture, is an essay called The Body and the Earth, in which he quips that at some point we began to assume that the life of the body would be the business of grocers and medical doctors who need take no interest in the spirit, whereas the life of the spirit would be the business of churches which would have at best only a negative interest in the body, which is a good way of putting it, only... The churches tell you what not to do with your body, but there's not a positive affirmation of the body, at least in Barry's view. And I think that that rings true to me. Um, I've heard many more sermons and lectures and youth group homilies about things we shouldn't do with our bodies than I have about how a well-ordered life in the body, a life in which the senses and appetites are governed by reason, presents opportunities for glorifying God and enjoying him forever by participating more fully in the glorious giftedness of creation. The triumph in our culture of Darwinian thinking has provoked from Christians an outpouring of books and articles, lectures, sermons, films, websites, bumper stickers, coffee mugs, and for all I know, Twitter feeds, I'm sure they're out there, dedicated to defending the fact of God's original creation of all things. But for all that, I think there's still precious little in the way of thoughtful reflection on the nature of God's engagement with creation and the practical meaning of the order of creation. By practical meaning, I mean the meaning in practice, how the order of creation should guide us toward some and away from other patterns of life in the body. In his book, God's Good World, theologian Jonathan Wilson laments the absence of a vital and consequential theology of creation in our churches, which has resulted, quote, in a low-grade Gnostic infection that weakens many parts of the church's life. Close quote. Wilson writes how, lacking a confident theology of creation, the undergraduates at the Christian college in which he's teaching are entirely ignorant of anything that might be called a theology of the body. Quote, as I tried to help them through extremely difficult questions of body image, 
often manifested in anorexia, bulimia, steroid use, obsessive exercising, immodest dress, sexual promiscuity, self-mutilation, and more, I realized they had no way of connecting their bodies to their faith, close quote. Wilson argues that the absence of a robust theology of creation means that the church has no principled foundation for guiding our life in this world. Lacking an explicit, deliberately framed, and extensively ramified theology of creation means that we tend to adopt the views of creation and its ramifications that are held by our secular neighbors. Quote, the way we use the stuff of creation in architecture, music, painting, food, books, money, cars, water, and more, that's an odd list, reflect our convictions about creation and teach us convictions for thinking about and living in creation. If we see the things of this world merely as instruments to the salvation of the spirit or saving souls, then we have truncated the good news of Jesus Christ. Creation is not instrumental to salvation in Christ. It is the very substance of salvation in Christ. The stuff of creation is what, the, what God the Son redeems through his becoming flesh, bearing our sin, enduring death, and rising to life. When we, have trunk, when we have a truncated doctrine of creation, we also have a truncated understanding of salvation. Now, why has this become characteristic in our time? Why are we lacking a commanding and foundational theology of creation? I think there are lots, lots of reasons, lots, some of them longstanding reasons, some of them more recent. And I think uh, one reason for ignoring a theology of creation at our, in our cultural moment is the role that science and technology have in changing the shape of our engagement with creation. A book that came out, must be 20 years ago now, maybe more, James Turner's book, Without God, Without Creed, chronicles the rise of atheism in America in the 19th century. And the gist of his argument is that 18th and 19th century theologians adjusted the claims of theology to better fit the reigning scientific interest in precise measurements and mechanistic explanations for everything. Theologians who were over-eager to be perceived as relevant, perhaps even missional in contemporary vocabulary, eliminated all elements of mystery and paradox in favor of theological explanations that would seem more credible within the mentality of science. At a more practical level, Turner points out, the 19th century saw great changes in attitudes toward nature, quote, when a complex commercial urban and then urban industrial society transformed the landscape. Technology and science greatly amplified the sense of human control over nature. At the same time, urban living and commercial and factory work insulated people from nature in the raw. Mastery over nature appeared to advance almost daily. The growth of cities and commerce heightened at least an illusion of control. A farmer lived at the whim of nature, rain or drought, frost or sun, but a merchant's or shopkeeper's success seemed to hinge on other men, not nature. Awe and bafflement at nature had hardly disappeared, Turner writes. Niagara still inspired wonder, but the rising inclination was to treat nature's mysteries as problems to be solved, its powers as resources to be controlled, period. Close quote. Throughout the 19th century, popular fascination with the sensational achievements of technology began to displace wonder and awe at the order of creation. Now this meant the shape of everyday life changed as well. Uh, urbanization and industrialization meant people were more detached from direct experience with nature. God's time gave way to man-made time, Turner puts it. Insulation from nature had much the same consequence as a growing sense of control over nature. Both reinforced the encroachment at more articulated levels of thought of natural causes pushing God's direct presence farther from everyday experience into an intangible spiritual realm. In other words, if the workings of nature can be perfectly understood by identifying materialistic mechanisms of cause and effect, then God becomes an unnecessary hypothesis as far as the life of the body in space and time is, in, is concerned. Nature is a machine that can go of itself. Christians, bound to a God with very little to do in the physical world, found it easy to focus all of their attention on God's work in the spiritual realm and leave the world of space and time and matter and motion to physicists, chemists, and biologists. Writing about 20 years ago, uh, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who was to become Pope Benedict the 16th, observed, for a variety of reasons, theologians often have a kind of phobia about treating the topic of creation. This, however, leads to the degeneration of faith into a kind of parochial ideology. 
to the worldlessness of faith and the godlessness of the world. I like that phrase a lot. Which is life-threatening for both. Where creation shrinks to the world around us, human beings and the world are out of quarter, uh, out of kilter. And I think by saying creation shrinks to the world around us, I think he means it's not connected to the creator. It doesn't have a necessary connection beyond itself. Uh, creation has, has come to be understood as something explainable without any reference to its continual relationship to God. The pre-modern church, by contrast, was confident that creation could only be properly understood with reference to that which was beyond creation, that the natural could only be comprehended in light of the supernatural, a supernatural that was not distant but imminent in the dynamic life of creation. So St. Paul at Mars Hill was happy to affirm the sentiment of a pagan poet who claimed that in God we live and move and have our being. Again, I like that phrase, the, world, the worldlessness of faith and the godlessness of the world. And I think it may be the case that our culture is more and more godless because many modern American Christians have practiced a faith that is practically worldless a faith that doesn't adequately address the meaning of life and the body in the world. David L. Schindler has said, the problem of secularism in America begins in a significant sense within the churches themselves and their theology and religious practice. Why should we be surprised if Americans increasingly experience Christianity as alien to their secular experience when their Christianity has already defined itself as alien to secular experience? <laughs> uh, to believe that the cosmos this is, that's the end of the quote. To believe that the cosmos is composed of neutral or dead or meaningless stuff is to believe that the universe is essentially indifferent to God, that God is an extrinsic reality. And then, again, the world becomes just a kind of mechanism. I'm spending time here that you've probably already learned if you've read uh, Peter or Jim's work, but I want to reinforce their critique of the Gnostic tendency in modern culture and the modern church because I think that the failure to recognize music as a source of intelligibility, as something to be apprehended by the intellect and not just by the body, or by the intellect and the body together, is an expression of a kind of Gnostic dualism. Affirming the goodness of music is a step in the right direction away from Gnosticism, but we need to be clear about what kind of good music is that it's not just a good physical experience. Now, uh, the Bible persistently insists on the necessity of rigorous bodily discipline and control, and that's often been misinterpreted both by Christians and by their critics as reflecting a low and dismissive view of the body, which is a bit like saying because a jockey uses reins in a saddle that he has a low view of horses. Um, the glory of the body is to serve and enable something more than merely material existence. It doesn't diminish the glory of the body, it simply situates and configures it within a greater whole of human being. It is modern materialism, not Christian theology, that has a low view of the body. For materialists, the body is just meat and wetware. A term I got from Wired magazine, I think. <laughs> Christians believe God himself took human form, that the word became flesh and still is flesh. I heard a sermon yesterday about the fact that Mary's DNA is on the throne of heaven, <laughs> that uh, our rector's pounding, uh, he's preaching a series of sermons on the incarnation. He's getting ready to preach a series on John. and He's talking about Jesus got his fleshly existence from his mother, just like all of us did. It wasn't something created and concocted, uh, he, but he's, he, he didn't actually say Mary's DNA is on the throne of heaven, but that was the gist of what I got out of it. <laughs> uh, the word, and, and that, I, I, I have to say, I have to confess, it was relatively late in my life that I realized that the incarnation wasn't suspended temporarily with the ascension, that, 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 that the, the, the dust of earth is on the throne of heaven, as someone said. And I remember the first time I, I spoke, at, it was at Geneva College, and I asked the, was speaking on uh, ideas about the body, and asked the student body, how many of you believe Jesus is still human? And most of the hands went up. How many of you believe still has a body? 
No hands went up until the president of the college put his hands up and then, <laughs> then all the students, oh yeah, I believe that. Well, I was, I was impressed with their submission to authority there. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, that, the, the, the reality of the incarnation and, and the, the continuation of the, of the incarnation is, uh, is something that's, I think, typically neglected in a lot of American churches. The word made flesh, the second person of the Trinity, by and for whom all things were made, and in whom all things hold together. The word made flesh means that God experienced creation from within, perceived the glory of what he had made with the five senses that we all enjoy. People often talk about a God's eye view of reality. Well, God's eye view of reality was also from, from within a body with five senses. The dust of the earth is on the throne of heaven. In the mystery of the incarnation, we perceive a wonderful elevation of the meaning of the body. John Paul II wrote, The body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world the mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus to be a sign of it. Modern naturalists argue that the body like the rest of the material world, is meaningless stuff on which our capricious wills impose whatever meaning we may fancy. The Christian faith affirms the body as, a, as fit to be a temple for the Holy Spirit, as an offering fitting for the presentation to God as an active and living sacrifice. For the materialist, the body is an instrument for pleasures that are self-contained, devoid of any larger context or significance. But for the Christian, the experience of the senses is a mode of communion with a world that declares God's glory and goodness in infinite forms. David Bentley Hart, in uh, The Beauty of the Infinite, writes that in the, the Christian tradition sees the whole cosmos, its splendor, uh, quote, its splendor, its magnificent order, its ever vaster profundities as a kind of theophany, a manifestation of the transcendent God within the very depths and heights of creation, close quote. In that book, Hart rings the changes on the pre-modern confidence that, as Augustine put it, the beauty of creation is a proclamation of divine beauty, specifically the dynamic of love that is at the heart of the life of the Trinity. Before the mechanistic understanding of creation triumphed in Western thought, Christian theologians were much more confident in asserting beauty as an attribute of God that is made manifest in creation. Creation itself is an expression of God's delight-filled love. God created for his pleasure, not out of necessity. So, as Hart puts it, it is delight that constitutes creation, and so only delight can comprehend it, see it aright, understand its grammar. Only in loving creation's beauty, only in seeing that creation truly is beauty, does one apprehend what creation is, close quote. We read in Genesis, at the end of each day of creation, God says it is good. David Bentley Hart claims that, quote, God's affirmations of the goodness of his creation in the first chapter of Genesis can be taken as indicating first and foremost an aesthetic evaluation rather than simply a moral one, close quote. And Hart goes on to cite several theologians who've suggested that it is only with the entry of sin into creation that beauty becomes separable from goodness and truth. He mentions in particular J.G. Hamann, Johann Jörg Hamann, who's a contemporary of Kant's, a quirky thinker in many ways, but brilliant. <laughs> uh, Hamann lamented the fact that the eating of the tree of knowledge has caused humanity to prefer speculative concepts over poetic enjoyment as a principal way of grasping the gist of things. He suggested if we hadn't fallen, it's an interesting hypothesis, that, that our perception of reality, a perception of the, of the goodness and beauty of creation, and by extension of who God is, would, take, would be more likely to take the form of po poetic imaginative expressions in music or, well, in, in poetry, than in PowerPoint presentations or in, in the sorts of things the theologians write. For Haman, and here Hart is summarizing, to a degree perhaps unparalleled in Christian thought, <laughs> the true knowledge of God in creation, the true analogy lay in a childlike rapture before the concrete and poetic creativity of God, in the task of translating the language of that creativity and in the rearticulation of that language in poetic invention. That's a pretty high view of the imagination and 
Now, I've come to think that one of the obstacles to internalizing that confident and vigorous posture toward creation is our sneaking suspicion that sin has thoroughly undone the goodness of creation. And I think we may harbor that suspicion because we're so used to talking about the gospel by beginning with the fact of sin rather than the fact of creation. We tell the story of Jesus' ministry with barely a moment's reflection. I say we, meaning typically the American church. Uh, without barely a moment's reflection on the awesomeness of the incarnation, and we fail to appreciate how the resurrection is as essential to the story of our redemption as is the cross. In incarnation and resurrection, we see God's affirmation of his beautiful order within creation. I'm struck by the fact that after the fall, the curse casts a shadow over childbirth and agriculture, which is the, are the sources of life. But babies are still born and harvests are still gathered. Even in a cursed world, the good order is a more fundamental fact than the shadow of death. The eclipse of goodness is partial, not total. And it's fascinating that the Psalms are absolutely confident that creation displays God's glory and wisdom. It seems pre-modern Christians were much more confident about the reality of beauty in creation, not only the reality of beauty in God than we are. If sin has not undone the judgment, of, the judgment of God in Genesis that all has been made good and beautiful, then, as David Bentley Hart argues, and this is getting toward our experience of music and other, other uh, artistic forms through the senses, the things of the senses cannot of themselves distract from God. All the things of earth in being very good declare God, and it is only by the mediation of their boundless display that the declaration of God may be heard and seen. In themselves, they have no essences apart from the divine delight that craftsmen, that crafts them. And so they have nothing in themselves by which they might divert attention away from the God who gives them. No specific gravity, no weight apart from the weight of glory. Only a corrupt desire that longs to possess the things of the world as inert property for violent or egoistic ends so disorders the sensible world as to draw it away from the God that sensible reality properly declares. Such a desire has not fallen prey to a lesser or impure beauty, but has rather lost sight of corporeal, material, and temporal beauty as beauty, and so has placed it in bondage. I realize that's pretty dense, but I hope you get the gist of that. For Christian thought, the world as experienced by the senses is an image of and participation in the God who is the wellspring of all being. This is hard again. The life of the body and the world, the life of the senses actively engaged with creation, is intrinsically an occasion for communion between mind and matter, between the human and the divine. Now, I mentioned the Darwinism and the, the outrage that it's provoked from a number of Christ, uh, Christians. But I think one of the saddest and most pathetic effects of Darwin, Darwinian materialism is the consequence that everything about human life is explained in terms of survival mechanisms. The only imaginable purpose for the life of the senses within the regime of naturalism is to enable sheer, desperate, competitive, unloving, violent-strewn survival. And it's fascinating how often this mentality uh, affects even Christians who, who, who think about uh, various attributes of human psychology uh, or even the human body uh, sometimes as, as, uh, as survival mechanisms. In the Darwinian view, taste and touch, sight and sound and fragrance all serve no higher purpose than situating species and each individual creature within a merciless pecking order. So it's no wonder that so much of the artistic expression in modern culture, whether in high culture or popular culture, has been characterized by a spirit of brutality and aggression. The assumption that human life is at root bestial and competitive or mechanical has taken countless aesthetic forms, many of them shaping our imaginations and those of our children without our even noticing. It's precisely because the body has such a noble and splendid vocation that demeaning the body and its capacities or failing to discipline the body and its practices so that its engagement with creation is properly ordered is a kind of sacrilege. And one way in which the body's vocation is compromised or eclipsed is by treating the sensible world, including the experience of sound and music, as intrinsically meaningless and thus the experience of the senses of sight and sound and smell as no more than material sensations.
Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm